Welcome to Edgemont Bible Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, where our mission is to glorify God by guiding people into a discipleship relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's listen in to today's message by our pastor, Douglas A. White. Revelation chapter 11. Let's just pick up our reading there. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed, sack, I'm sorry, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. They have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. We'll stop right there and we'll pick up our reading with this. Um, reminder here. Let's, let's go first of all. It's been a while since we've been in the book of Revelation. Let's go back and review where we are. So here's where we are. Right now, all seven seals, where we're at with our reading is all seven seals have been opened. That's happened over a period of a, roughly three and a half years. Um, that's been the first three and a half years. So if, what I'll do, I'll go ahead and set this platform up as the, um, the timeline for us here. We'll go back here. Right about in here starts the seven-year tribulation. This is Daniel's 70th week. This is that last seven years that, that God had promised to bring all things to a close. So there's three and a half years, and then that works its way up to what's called the middle of the tribulation. And this middle of the tribulation is where the Antichrist is now in Jerusalem. He stops all sacrifice, and he makes himself to be God and claims that everybody has to worship him. What happens after this point right here is called the Great Tribulation. So these next three and a half years, which, by the way, is the same as 42 months. It's the same as 1,260 days. This next three and a half years, God is pouring out bowls of wrath. Lots of things are happening on this earth during that last period of time. And at the end of that, that last three and a half years, at the end of that seven years, Jesus Christ will return. All right, so just so we've set that up, seven of the seals of that scroll book have been opened. With the seventh seal, angels with seven trumpets prepare to sound. Five have already sounded. By the time we get to this reading right here, five have already sounded with devastating effects on the earth. Millions have died. The sixth has just sounded with an army of 200 million that's killing one-third of the earth's population. John, in, in chapter 10, has just been recommissioned to prophesy to many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And earlier in the fourth trumpet, chapter 8, verse 13, so if you want to turn there, you sure can. Chapter 8, verse 13, he says, I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth because the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. 
Those, those are three woes. One of them has already passed, and we're about to see the second one pass today. So having said those things, let's just kind of pick up a little bit, and I'll talk to you about some interpretive challenges. Um, it's, it's good for us, I think, as we go through these studies like this to learn that the way we interpret scriptures is extremely important. I've tried to share with you that this book is not a chronological book. It's not written so that one chapter chronologically follows another. But it's written more like what, what I have uh, said is more like a, uh, a news broadcast. So if you can see a news broadcast that has a monitor back here, this is what's going on in um, the United States. Uh, this, is, this is what's going on in Moscow. This is what's going on in Iran. This is what's going on. The, and all these monitors are here, and they are saying things. Oftentimes, the things that are being shown on those monitors happen at the same time. But you didn't get to see them all at the same time. So maybe we're going to watch what happened in the United States here. Maybe it's going to be the elections in the United States. But maybe uh, after, after he's finished that, the next thing you see, and John's going to say, after this I saw, and he goes to the next screen. And the next screen shows this is what's happening in Russia. But it happened at the same time this one happened. Everybody with me? So as you're looking at each of these chapters, don't think of them as necessarily chronological because some of them are not. The ones we're looking at right now have a, a pause in history where we're going to look back and see, matter of fact, chapters 12 and 13 are going to be dealing with the Antichrist and how he came about. Well, that's clear back here at the beginning of the tribulation. And then he's got a career that expands the whole of the seven years. All right. So we're going to have a chapter that explains where he came from. We're going to have a chapter that explains all the history of that event and how it took place in Revelation chapter 12. So you've got several things here we've got to look at, and that becomes an interpretive challenge. And as I'm looking here at chapter 11, one of the interpretive challenges that there is, when did this take place? Is this the first three and a half years? Is it the second three and a half years? Well, Let's, let's just take a look at what I've written here, that timing and interpretation are difficult in this passage. When does it happen? That seven-year period, as we said, divided into two halves, and those are each one three and a half years. Now, it says in here, as we were counting, looking here in verse 2, but leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, for they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So there are three and a half years or 42 months that they're going to tread the holy city. All right? Then notice what it goes on to say in verse 3. And I will give power to my witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now that tells us another three and a half years. It's talking about the, the, the three and a half years there. 42 months and 1,260 days are equal, but they're not necessarily the same. You could have a description of one that's going on back here in the second half and one description going on in the first half, right? So let's see what we can discover there. When is Jerusalem given to the Gentiles? Well, I think it's given to them in the second half. Why do I say that? Well, if you remember what was supposed to take place, Israel's going to have this great revival that takes place. You've got 144,000 evangelists that are going to be preaching, and the gospel's going everywhere. And as the gospel's going everywhere, people are turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But when the adversary, Satan, uh, or the, the Antichrist, enters in Jerusalem, as soon as he does the abomination of desolation, that offering himself as if he's God, what happens to all the believers? Jesus told them, get out of town as soon as you see that happening. Don't go back to your room and pack. Don't go pick up anything. Don't gather up anything. Don't even look around. Just get out of Jerusalem because it's all about to take place then. So what would happen in Jerusalem? What's its population going to be like in that three and a half year, as soon as that event takes place? All believing people are gone. What's left? Just the unbelieving Gentile group. And they will now have the entire city to themselves. Everybody follow where I'm at? Now consider secondly, number two. The witnesses worked 1,260 days affirming, affirming the Lord's presence in Jerusalem. I think the Scriptures teach us they're in this half of the Scriptures. And I'm saying that because of who they are and what they're doing. He calls them a heavenly witness. That'll, that'll come up later as we go through. But we've long known that Elijah has to come before the Lord Jesus Christ comes. And there is a return to Moses and the people. Those are two witnesses. So people often call these two witnesses Moses and Elijah. I don't think they are Moses and Elijah. They're there in the spirit of Moses and Elijah. But they are not Moses and Elijah. They are the two heavenly witnesses. He tells us who they are. Everybody with me so far? Okay. So these first three and a half years, that's what they're doing. They're there to affirm the presence of the Lord. We can, we can come to the second part of this sermon. I think you'll see where I'm coming from on that. Number three, <clears throat> the Antichrist has been busy conquering the rest of the world until he enters Jerusalem. So in these first three and a half years, what's he been doing? He's been all the rest of the world. He's that rider. He's the, the rider on the white horse in the first seal has now empowered that guy. He's been out here conquering everybody. He's not been in Jerusalem. So in order for him to kill these two witnesses, he's got to come to Jerusalem. That happens in the middle of the tribulation. That means they will have been ministering already during this period of time. Everybody see my logic on the thing? All right. Let's, let's go another step further then. The problem that's going to be is, as it says in verse 14, when they are killed and resurrected, it says the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Wait a minute. If that's the second woe that's, that's past, that has to be a timing that must be back in here. Let me state this. The woe is what's past, and the woe has to do with the killing of those witnesses who've been witnessing here. There's no more a witness to all these people. There has been a witness through those guys right up to this point right here. But as soon as he kills them and they are resurrected and ascended, there's no one left to talk to these unbelieving people. Now they are going to trod underfoot Jerusalem. Everybody see where, where my logic is on this? All right, let's, let's go on then, and let's figure out this measuring thing here. 
In chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. What has to be present if he's going to measure it? The, the temple, the altar, and the people who worship, right? Well, if it's the second half that he's measuring, where is everybody? They left at right at the middle of the tribulation. So he's not measuring that. He's measuring up here. Because this is where the renewal and the revival has come to Israel. This is where the temple is built in this first three and a half years. So they're rebuilding the temple here. They're about to get it done. And you're measuring so that you can see how much has been done. And you're measuring the structure. You're measuring the altar. And you're measuring the people. So you're getting all of that done. So with those things having been measured, he goes on to say this, but leave out the court which is outside the temple. Don't measure it, for it's been given to the Gentiles. So he's measuring during this first three and a half years. Once he's finished measuring it, who's going to desecrate the temple? It's the Antichrist, and it's in the middle of the tribulation that he desecrates the temple. Everybody with me? All right. <clears throat> John is on earth for this. So if this, he says, I was given a rod like a measuring rod. The angel stood and told him. So in order for John to measure the temple that's on earth, in order for him to measure the altar, and in order for him to measure the people who are there, he has to be down on the earth getting it measured. Everybody with me? All right. He's not to measure the courtyard. It, I'm, I'm sorry, if I've, I've missed some blanks for you here. Let me, let me go fill in some blanks for you. Letter B up above under number two, that's Bereans. Um, biblical clues. We've been given biblical clues. We're to seek them like Bereans. So you can fill that blank in there. Timing is important, number three in your outline there. And timing is important. So that's why we had to make a decision about when they were there. Then letter B in your outline under number three, not to measure the courtyard, it is given to the Gentiles. Now, I want you to get this picture here. This is not Ezekiel's uh, chapter 40 and following, the big temple he builds there, 40 to 48. This is not Ezekiel's temple that he's measuring. This is the third temple that's been built. Solomon built the first one. Then Zerubbabel and Herod improved on what Zerubbabel did. They built the second one, and that was the one that the Lord Jesus Christ saw. That one was destroyed by the Romans. This is a third temple that's going to be built. Um, and that third temple is not the same as the millennial temple of, that Ezekiel saw. That's a fourth temple yet. Everybody with me? I know I'm asking you that a lot, but I just want to make sure because this can be very confusing material. I don't want to be confusing about anything. The Gentiles will tread on the holy city for 42 months. That's the last half of the tribulation. And I'm going to say this. This measuring is prior to the rule of the Antichrist in Jerusalem. He's measuring back here as they're finishing the temple. He's measuring in those first three and a half years when the Antichrist comes he will stop that temple. There's nothing to measure after this point. It's all been stopped. And you've got all of this that's out here. This is where the, the whole place is being desecrated. All right? Let's go to page two. 
because I want to work on these witness guys here. They are pretty important. The importance of a faithful witness. Jesus is called the faithful witness, the faithful and true, the one who told the truth. You know, guys, we, we live in a world where truth is a hard thing to find sometimes. Um, you, you, you have to listen several times and hear the story again, and then somebody brings out another little fact that wasn't there before, wasn't there before. So there are a lot of things that change. To have a faithful witness that tells you the absolute truth is phenomenal. And Jesus Christ is that faithful witness. He's the one who faithfully told us what God is about. He told us what we're about. He told us about the restoration. He told us about the gospel. He told us about the the making people transformed. He told us about everything, and he told exactly what God said. He said, I didn't come up with any ideas on my own. I have told you exactly what God the Father said. That's a faithful witness. These two are faithful witnesses. They have come to do something very specific to the, the people that are alive during this first three and a half years. They have come to minister to the people who are there to make sure those people know affirmingly that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, why is that so important? Because everything before that, they've not been believing that Jesus Christ is Lord. As far back as the Apostle Paul, remember what he was praying in Romans? I'm praying for my own people. I have a zeal for my own people that they would be saved, that they would believe the Lord Jesus Christ. Kids, they have lived 2,000 years outside of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is starting a work with 144,000 sealed evangelists to speak the Word of God to people that they might know who Jesus Christ is, especially to the Jewish people, then these two witnesses are going to be there affirming that this is God's testimony. And they're going to affirm it by doing the same kinds of things that the Old Testament prophets did. So let's look and see if we've got some blanks to fill in for you there. You have the importance of faithful witnesses. Um, they're often identified with Moses and Elijah, and there's good reason for it. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead to number four. Um, yeah, let's go to number four in your outline there. I'm, I'm, I think I want to jumble my outline up just a little bit. So let's go to, if you would, Malachi 4, 4 to 6. Malachi 4, 4 to 6. Malachi 4, 4 reads this. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgment. Why does he have to tell him to remember? Because it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget. You know, by the time the Old Testament has been through all the traditions of rabbinical teachings, all of the commentaries that have been made, it's hard to tell what's Torah and what's not. And when when Jesus came, he told them, look, guys, you're following traditions that you've made yourselves. This is not what my father gave. 
You are raising your traditions up equal with my father's word. That's not the way it's done. So what's he doing? He's calling for them to remember the law of Moses. Remember the Torah. Stop thinking about all the commentaries and all the notes about it. Go back to Torah. Go back to Moses, my servant. If you go back and read that, you'll understand why Messiah must come. Everybody see where we're at on this? Now, let's go to the next thing. So he's calling his people to come back to the original covenant. He's calling his people to come back to the Torah. Let's go on. Number five, verse five. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So now he says he's going to send Elijah, Elijah the prophet. And as he sent Elijah the prophet, the goal of Elijah the prophet is he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And when is he going to send him? Before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Everybody with me? He sent him before then. So when would that be? Here. In the first three and a half years. Because here is what's called the great and terrible day of the Lord. So he's going to send his prophet before that. And what's the prophet going to do? If we have been remembering, I shouldn't say we, if Israel has been remembering the law of Moses, his servant, and they now hear Elijah speaking to them about the law, the hearts of the children are going to be turned to the hearts of the fathers, the way back here fathers, the ones who remembered the Torah. And the hearts of the children, the hearts of the fathers are going to be melded together. Look how he's going to pass the expanse of time. He's going to bring all those people back together again to think about the law of Moses, to think about the covenant that God made with them. Remember with me for just a moment. When Moses came to Israel, he came to a bunch of tribes that were not united. They were not a nation. They were all the slaves in Egypt. They, they weren't remembering God. Matter of fact, they only had oral stories of what had happened to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They had those stories, but they hadn't heard from God for 400 years. When Moses came, he's coming to share with them, the Lord has come. Jehovah has come. Jehovah is saying, come out of this place. I've got a new place I'm going to take you. So Moses is bringing the children of Israel together to see this new promised land that's for them. Everybody with me? What does Elijah do? Elijah's ministry was to the northern tribes of Israel who had forgotten God. They left Jerusalem. They formed their own ten-nation confederacy up there and never believed in the Lord. They believed in Baal, and they worshiped Baal. What was Elijah's big moment? The showdown on Mount Carmel with the, the prophets of Baal and the Lord. What was the goal of that? Elijah said after the end of that whole showdown, he said, choose this day. Who is the Lord? And if this Lord is Lord, if Jehovah is Lord, then get with him. In other words, his goal is to bring Israel back to Jehovah. 
Moses' goal was to bring Israel back to Jehovah. These two witnesses are bringing Israel back to Jehovah and to Jehovah's true faithful witness, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what these two witnesses are doing. That's why they're faithful witnesses. They're bringing them back to the old covenant to recognize the fact that a new covenant has been made with the Lord Jesus Christ. You you remember when the people returned in Nehemiah's day and they got the wall built and they were all excited about all that and they came and Ezra came and opened up the word of God and read it. Do you remember how excited and happy they got about that? If you think they got excited and happy, think again. They didn't. They wept. Why did they weep? Because they knew what they had done wrong. They heard the word of God and they knew why they were wrong. So now you have two faithful witnesses and 144,000 faithful witnesses who are reminding people, this is the covenant that you broke. And here is the covenant that God is making anew with you in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what these two witnesses are for. Uh, Now, let's turn to Zechariah chapter 4 just for a moment. Zechariah chapter 4. We were told... In this passage, <clears throat> that these are the two witnesses that stand before the Lord. So let's pick this up. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 4. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the others at its left. So I answered and saying to the, and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Now stop just for a minute. Who's Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel was the guy rebuilding the temple. Everybody follow me? He's the guy rebuilding the temple. And he's telling Zerubbabel, hey, it's not by might. It's, not, it's by my spirit, says the Lord. It's not going to be by your strength. Listen, this guy's got a task ahead for him. He's got enemies all around him who don't want that temple built. He's got conquests going all around. They've got the Grecians. They've got the Persians. You've got all kinds of trouble. Ken, how's he going to get this done? The Lord's saying to Zerubbabel, you're not going to build that by yourself. It's by my spirit. Now, if I can, that's way back here in history. Let me just zip us real quick up into the history that we're dealing with with these two witnesses. Here they are, and they have to build a temple. How are they going to build a temple when all the world is dead set against them? No, you're not. That is the mosque, and you're not defiling that mosque. You're not going to do that. 
What would be the word to Zerubbabel, the new Zerubbabel, whoever that one is that's supposed to rebuild the temple? It's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So you tell the guys who want to rebuild the temple, don't sweat the small stuff. I know how to take care of people around. I know how to get this done. And it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit. How, how are they going to rebuild that temple? It won't be because the United Nations says, you may. It won't be because the armies of the world say, you may. It won't be because the armies of the world defy them. It'll be because the Lord builds the place. And what did he bring but two great witnesses to stand before him and say, the Lord will do this. I'll shut up the heavens. I'll turn water to blood. This is what the Lord is saying. Just like the Old Testament prophets, a whole new spiritual movement is taking place. Everybody see where we're at? That's who these two witnesses are. And in addition to that, you've got Joel chapter 2 happening. And Joel chapter 2 says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your young men are going to dream dreams. Your old men are going to have visions. Your maidens are going to speak in visions and truth. I'm bringing all that. That's all happening right here in this first three and a half years. There is a grand revival taking place in Israel. The gospel being preached in all the world, but here in Israel, with these two witnesses and these evangelists, Israel is coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're building a temple. Now let's go back and see how we can fill in blanks, all right? Let's go back to letter B, number one. They prophesy 1,260 days. I think that's, I've shown that that's the first half of the tribulation. They're there to speak the word of God. They're there to restore Israel to the new covenant relationship, to make there a godly nation again. What was it that Moses did if it was not to take all those tribes together, bring them all together, and turn them into a nation? They went from just scattered tribes, ununited. Now he's brought them together, and they are a a nation now. What's Elijah doing if he's not calling the nation back to people again? Nation back to worshiping Jehovah again. This is nation building that's taking place here. Number two, they prophesy while clothed in sackcloth. And that's the symbol of grief, sorrow, repentance, humiliation, and abasement. These guys are talking about this is a sad, sad thing. What Israel has done in rejecting Christ is sad. And that's what these these witnesses are dressing in. They're saying, we grieve for Israel. We are, just like Paul had done earlier in Romans chapter 11, I think it is. I'm grieving for my nation. I want them to be saved. And he's saying here... These two were grieving for the nation. They want them to be saved, but he's given them great power. They are presiding over a grand revival happening in Israel as hard-hearted Israelis are turning from their rejection of Christ to receiving him. This is a return of the Old Testament prophet style. Because the history of Israel, when Israel reads the Torah, when Israel reads the histories, when Israel reads the prophecies, they're reading back here to know this is the way the Old Testament prophets did things. 
And when they see them doing exactly the same kinds of things that Elijah did, the same kind of things that Moses did, it affirms for them this is the move of God. And then when they see, as in Joel chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and people being saved and wonderful things taking place, they're going to know that this is the work of Almighty God. And these two witnesses are presiding over the grand revival. The response of believing ones will be intense with signs of the Spirit. Once again, that's Joel chapter 2, which is the same uh, that um, Peter quoted in Acts chapter 2. All right, going on further. The response of the rejecting ones will be equally intense, expressed as hatred for the witnesses. So let's just see how this goes. So here are these two witnesses, and they're, they're witnessing this whole temple being built, and John's measuring it to say this is how it's all going to be built. They're measuring the worshipers there. These are presiding over this grand revival that's taking place when into the city comes Antichrist. And as he comes into the city, he starts putting everything down. And now he comes to the temple that has just been rebuilt, and he stops the sacrifices from taking place, and he sets himself up there to be worshiped. Now, follow what takes place here, kids. As soon as he does that, what happens to all the believing ones? They're leaving. They're getting out. They know that it's bad news that's about to take place. And so this guy now kills the two prophets. If it's just chock full of believing people, then there's no way they're not going to be crying. But instead, let's take a look back at Revelation chapter 11. This is full of hard-hearted people. Picking up here, verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So here in these three and a half years, they've been tormenting people. They've been presiding over the great revival that's taking place in Jerusalem and in Israel. And now when they're killed, only unbelievers are left and they are thrilled that these guys are dead. Don't even let them be buried. Let their carcasses lay out there. We can throw things at them. We can do things. But let's give gifts to each other. Let's just have a great party. They hated them. And I say it's much the same way as he said in Psalm 2 when the kings of the earth said, let's get rid of their bonds. If we can get rid of their bonds, it'll be much the same way that you're going to see in not, not far from now in our own history. There's a time once again we'll be saying, let's get rid of the Christians. They have been nothing but problems to us. They're hypocrites. They're all kinds of things. There are going to be all kinds of names spoken about them. Let's forget them. Let's get rid of them. Let's kill them. All right? Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Verse 11 then tells us, Now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. 
And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. There's the interpretive challenge. Because if this second woe comes because of the result of a trumpet, then it's out here someplace. It's after the middle of the tribulation because that's when the trumpets were going on. Here's what I understand. They ministered all this first three and a half years. They are killed at the end of their ministry. That would put it right here that the second woe is past. They have immense powers. Great things have been done. Believers will have left Jerusalem quickly. Your blank is number two of letter C. He will kill these two witnesses. A grand celebration follows. And after three and a half days, they are resurrected. That woe is past. Okay. What's your takeaway today? Takeaway number one. God promised Israel he would restore them to himself. He promised Israel that would take place. He promised he would bring them into a new covenant. And he sent a Savior who made that covenant with them. That Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's coming a day when Israel will trust Jesus Christ. That's what these three and a half witnesses, what you're looking at here is the faithfulness of God to Israel. What you're seeing here, kids, should thrill you because God has been faithful to you as well. He's being faithful to Israel. He promised them he would restore them, and that's exactly what he's doing with these two witnesses. He's bringing them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that may mean a whole lot of persecution which is going to follow. That may mean a whole lot of death and suffering which is going to follow, but their lives are forever wrapped up in the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ just as yours are. Your takeaway today is that God is faithful. And if you're living today saying, I don't know if I'll get through tomorrow. I don't know if I'll get through next week. I don't know if I, I've got this health challenge that's before me. I've got this financial challenge that's before me. Can I just say this? God is faithful. He will bring you through whatever it is you think you're facing. Kids, it's his goal to make you look just like the Lord Jesus Christ. And since that's his goal, he will finish that goal. You will look like the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's calling on us today is to believe what he's going to do. You're saved in hope. You're saved because of the future. This is the future. This is what he's going to do. And this is the day that you don't turn your back on the word of God. You don't let the culture suck you up. You don't let the culture be that which surrounds you and drowns you. You are alive. Don't let it be the culture that gets you. You be one who survives the whole culture. Let's look to the Lord now. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for the way in which you have operated this great plan.
Thank you for the way in which you have saved people's lives. Thank you that you are going to save Israel. So we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the salvation of the souls of Israel. And we thank you for what you're going to do there. Thank you for the way you're going to accomplish these things, Father, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We hope God has encouraged you with today's message by Pastor White. Thank you for joining us at the Edgemont Bible Church. We'd love to have you visit us if you're ever in the area. For directions, more information, or to support the ministry of Edgemont Bible Church, please go to our website at edgemontbiblechurch.org. That's edgemontbiblechurch, all one word, dot org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Edgemont Bible Church, where the Sunday morning message is broadcast live.